we are uh, in a little while going to be looking at a passage of the Bible uh, in Colossians, uh, thinking all about our, the next step of our series, Good News. That's what we've been looking at, if you remember. Uh, spent a couple of weeks thinking about so far, uh, particularly the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that that brings, that we don't have a saviour who's still in his tomb. We have one who's reigning and we have hope forever. And we've been thinking about that, uh, not just that it's good, but that it could even be true, we thought with Johnny last week. And today I want to pick up, but slightly reverse, if you like, and go two days earlier in the Christian story. And I want us to focus for uh, a minute or two, uh, maybe longer, on what you could say is the darkest day in the Christian story, actually, the, the death of Jesus. It's this day, isn't it, if you know the story, full of uh, betrayal and uh, an evil and uh, fear and darkness and murder. And what I want us to think about is how could it possibly be that a day full of so much darkness could be said to be good news? That's what I want us to think about. Because it's interesting, I don't know if you know this, instinctively I think we're on the back foot if we want to say that the death of Jesus is good news. Uh, Not least because deaths tend not to be good news, um, I, I guess, right? And, and also, if you know anything about Christian history, one of the things, really the main thing, the main area of Christian thought and teaching that has been the object of mockery and derision through the centuries is that we worship a God who died. If you think about the culture that Jesus died in, the kind of Roman Empire, that was a culture that revered the strong leader right? The military might of Rome, right, was the big thing. And it worshipped kind of the emperor worship and power. And therefore, to have a God who meekly gives up without even fighting and dies, it's not good news. It's actually embarrassing. It's shameful. It's a little bit pathetic, actually. And we know that because the earliest depiction of the death of Jesus that is still available to us today is some third century graffiti that was scratched on a wall in Rome in the start of the third century. And just stick it up. Uh, This is it there. And what the caption says is, Alex Semenos worships his God. And it's apparently graffiti mocking a Christian called Alex Semenos because look what the Christians worship, just a donkey on a cross. That we know what gods are like, but Christians worship a dead donkey. That's what, how people saw it in the Roman Empire. It's not just in the third century. Flick forward to the 19th century and Nietzsche, who you might have heard of, someone who was very anti-God in all of his stuff. But the big thing that Nietzsche hated was what he called the paradox, the ghastly paradox of God on a cross. He just couldn't stomach that idea. And come forward into uh, the, the next century, Adolf Hitler, who was a person who was very happy for his own political means and uh, ends to, to talk Christian-ish occasionally in speeches. But people around him, his closest uh, allies and, and, and workers with Hitler, they all spoke about how in his stomach, he couldn't stomach the meekness and the weakness of the crucifixion. If you know anything about what Hitler thought of leadership, you know that the cross doesn't look like leadership to Hitler. 
and he couldn't stomach it. It made him almost allergic to that idea. As the Apostle Paul said, uh, uh, kind of at the start of the Christian church, the cross is foolishness to many. Many people just can't stomach it, and we're trying to say it's good news. So which is it? Is it true that the cross is foolishness and weakness and a defeat and an embarrassment, or could it be that the cross is the power of God, the wisdom of God, a universe-shaking, cosmic, everything-changing reality happens on the cross? Which is it? Let's look at the Bible and see what Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 to 15 says. It will come up on the screen or read along in your your New Testament if you want to. It says this, God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave us all our sins. He cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he, Jesus, disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Do you see that? Just going to do some little audience participation here. What it says is that Jesus in the, on the cross is in his moment of victory. That as he's dying, he's in his moment of victory. Come on, more of you. That as he's bleeding and writhing and then flopping and giving up, he's in his moment of victory. As he suffocates on his own blood and everyone spits at him and he's got that that horrible mocking crown shoved in his head. That is his moment of victory. Says, says Paul in Colossians. And notice that when Jesus is being crucified, he isn't simply, therefore, Jesus the crucified. He's Jesus the conqueror on the cross. The cross is his kind of execution scaffold. It's also his throne and his chariot where he wins, says Paul. That Jesus isn't just a victim, but Jesus is the victor on the cross. And uh, I just need us to linger slightly longer. Where does the victory happen? The victory is on the cross, right? Not, this says, in the resurrection. Now, we sometimes think of it that the resurrection, now, I'm not anti-resurrection, like, yay, the resurrection. If Jesus stayed dead, we wouldn't know whether there was a victory won. If Jesus had stayed dead, we would not have a living saviour to relate to, to fill us with power. If Jesus had stayed dead, we would have assumed he was being defeated on the cross. But the resurrection is the announcement of the victory and the displaying of the victory and the public, there you go, of the victory. But the victory is won on the cross, he says. That the victory doesn't so much get won as Jesus bursts out or breaks out of death, but as he bleeds out, this verse says. That Jesus on the cross is not just being fought, he's fighting for you on the cross. He's fighting for the world. He's fighting for our city. 
as he's weak, he's a warrior on the cross. That's what these verses teach. And what I want us to do uh, before I go to Wembley is I want us to think about three things. I want us to think about who is the victory over, how is the victory won, and then how is it good news for us and our city, okay? Who is the victory over? Now, this language of Christ being a victor and a warrior has been totally, totally misunderstood through history or deliberately nicked for political gain through history to justify physical acts of violence in the name of Jesus. And uh, even recently in New Zealand, if you clocked that appalling terrorist attack that happened at a mosque, a right wing, a far right, very far right politician in New Zealand justified that in the name of Christianity. Because Jesus is a warrior, isn't he? You know, sometimes you in your life, you think that you're fighting against uh, people who disagree with you at work, and that's your big battle. Or uh, we're fighting against uh, other religions who don't believe what we, we believe, and that's where the battle is. That is not where the battle is. Look what it says in verse 15. His victory was over the spiritual rulers and authorities. Jesus isn't taking on Rome on the cross. He's losing to Rome on the cross. But he's taking on the spiritual rulers and authorities, it says. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 6, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Did you hear me say that? but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. The victory that happens on the cross is against Satan and his demonic forces in the spiritual unseen thing going on in the universe. Now, it might just be me because I'm a bad Christian, but I think sometimes, even though I love Jesus, I can instinctively feel a little bit tempted to dismiss the idea of Satan, the demons, things like that. It sounds a little bit um, kind of sci-fi, maybe a little bit dated, and we're a little bit more sophisticated today, and we don't really want to buy into all that stuff. And plus, I've seen churches handle that stuff really badly, so I kind of just ignore those bits of my Bible. That's sometimes how I'm tempted to feel. And if that's you, just before we get into how this victory is won, I want to say three quick things. If you doubt any mention of Satan, the demons, all of that stuff, I want to just help you think about it with three quick thoughts. The first thing I'd say is if you're cynical about this, do not buy the lie that to believe in an unseen spiritual realm, you are in the minority in the world. That is not true. You can feel like that, can't you? That in your office, you might be in a minority. Um, You might not be, but you might be. But in the world, you are not in a minority. What do you think it is? 5% believe in an unseen spiritual realm, 10, maybe 20, 84% of planet Earth today believes in an unseen spiritual realm. So that doesn't mean it's true, but it means you're not a mug if you think like that. Most people think like that. And if you're sitting there going, yeah, but Rich, that's all those kind of, you know, far away countries with you know and they don't really get it just to say as a westerner the idea that we are extremely enlightened and we need to go around the world and all those all those people who don't know anything we need to teach them our new enlightenment we just need to be careful of that idea that's not gone down well in history 
particularly, I would say. So 84% of the world believe in this stuff. The second thing I'd say, which won't convince you if you're not a Christian, but as a Christian, this is a, this is a done deal for me now because of this. I believe in demons and the devil because Jesus does, right? So in the Gospels, uh, you, you read, I'm reading Mark's Gospel at the moment, and you can't get past the first page before you're confronted with this reality. And G- Jesus is attacked by Satan. He speaks to Satan. He speaks to demons as if they have names, intellects, decision-making ability, language, uh, a moral uh, center to their being, though it would be turned to evil. And Jesus thinks this stuff is real. And he thinks that demons have the power to influence people and societies. So for me as a Christian, I don't go by the secular West is, se- is skeptical, so so will I be. I go by Jesus believes in this stuff, so do I. Okay? And the last thing I would say is if you look around Birmingham and think, I'm not really sure that there's demonic stuff like it says in the Bible, you know. I haven't seen, you know, you kind of picture what that would look like and you perhaps picture the film The Exorcist and you think it's all going to look like that and you look out of your window on a sunny morning and it doesn't look massively satanic, right? But here's the interesting thing. What if demonic activity doesn't always look like we think it does and therefore it might be all around us in our city but we just miss it. I'll say that again. What if demonic activity might not always look like we think it does, and therefore it's happening all around us in our city, but we just miss it? Uh, Topi Kolioso, a Nigerian who passes in London, says this, the average Western Christian has the tendency to think of demonic influences these are his words, as something that happens in a weird dark part of Africa or Bangladesh, I don't know why he particularly picked Bangladesh, or some place where they worship idol gods. But demons, this is a chilling sentence, demons have a notorious way of acclimatizing to the area where they are so that it becomes easy to miss them. And so maybe, hypothetically, a society that's influenced by Satan and demons might not look necessarily like the exorcist in every minute. And what I did was I took a little wander through the New Testament and tried to pick out what does it look like when Satan and demons get to work in a society or in a person? What does it look like? And uh, to your relief, I found that our society seems to be totally free of all the symptoms (laughs) Uh, Let me show you just six symptoms. Uh, In Acts 5 verse 3, some people are described as having their hearts filled by Satan, and the symptom of that is greed. Now, what a relief that we are not impacted by that. Phew. What a relief that the, the, the moral heart of our nation leans towards generous provision to the poor. That's a relief. How relieving that all of us find it easy to give money away. And none of us have more shoes than we need. Yeah, good that we've moved on from satanic stuff, isn't it? Mark 1 describes uh, Satan as a tempter. That temptation would be a thing if Satan was real. Again, what a good job that our society is free of temptation. That's a good thing, isn't it? That I walked the other day from 
central house, the church office, to the ticket collection uh, machine in New Street. And yet walking on my journey saw four 100-foot-tall adverts with pixel, you know, airbrushed women who don't really exist because they're a computer-generated thing, hardly wearing any clothes, as I just tried to get my train ticket. What a good job our society hasn't gone for temptation. You know, most of us, we see 4,000 adverts a day that say to us, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. And when I was this morning thinking about that stat, I thought, I must have misread that. I'm going to look that up because I don't want to lie in my talk because that's naughty. And I looked it up, and it's 5,000 a day. Go on, go on, go on. What else would a a Satan-influenced society look like? James 3 says, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and boastfulness. Are we sure our society has moved on from this stuff? (laughs) Are we sure? John 8 says, a satanic society hates truth. Believe what you want. Your truth's fine. You know, there's no truth. Oh. Colossians 2 says that the spiritual powers of this world produce empty philosophies, ways of thinking about life and the world that in the end have no substance to them, that sound good but are empty. And Ephesians 4 says that satanic attack is linked to anger. What a good job that we've moved on from anger as a society, right? Yeah, we're Satan. What a stupid idea. Do you know there are 10,000 police ready to be deployed for the day we leave the EU, anywhere in the city in case there's riots? Do you know that 270 people have been stabbed in Birmingham this year? Are we sure that Satan's not got his hands on our society? Are we sure? Or could it be that, as it says in 1 John 5, 19, the world around us is under the control of the evil one? Now, if that was true, wouldn't it be glorious news for us and for our city if someone had come to fight a battle against Satan and could win a victory? Wouldn't that be good news? Yeah, I agree. Number two, How is the victory won? Because he comes and he wins a victory. Look at Colossians 2 again. He cancelled the record of the charges against us, took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Two things that Paul says happen at the cross. The cross is a disarming and the cross is a public shaming. Just want to look at those for a second. The cross is a disarming, firstly, that as Jesus is disarmed, he's disarming Satan on the cross. Now, disarming, we use that language, don't we, to mean, oh, he's quite disarming. (laughs) Like, you know, he comes into a meeting, and he's just so disarming, and it means nice, doesn't it? Disarming, in this context, means not nice, it means fighting and taking off the weapons of the enemy and rendering them powerless. That's what disarming is. And as it looks like Jesus is being left powerless, he's rendering Satan 
powerless by nicking his weapons. And there are two main weapons that Satan has against us. They are sin and death. And Jesus gets into both of them and takes the power off Satan of sin and death. Firstly, he takes it off him of sin. You see in the passage, it talks about the record of the charges that stood against us. That's this idea that every single person in this room and every single person in the world, there is a list, a record of things that stand against you. And they aren't made up. It's not slander. It comes from you. And it stands against you, your, your thoughts that betray righteousness and God and goodness and your actions that contribute to that sort of society and mine. And they stand against us. And do you know what the devil does? He reminds us of that all the time. You are a sinner. You are a sinner. You're worth it. Look what you've done. Do you remember what you saw and looked at? Do you remember what you used to be like? Do you remember what you're like now? You're a hypocrite. And he accuses us. And the reason why it's powerful is because it's true. It's true. We have done wrong. And sometimes we try and appease our conscience by going, no, 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 I'm great. Not true. He accuses us accurately. And so what does Jesus do to disarm that weapon? He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He doesn't say, no, 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 no. Like, you're a hero, really. He goes to the cross and he says, I'll be punished for the record of charges that stands against Rich Pitt and you lot. And I'll be punished for it so that there's no more judgment. So that now when Satan accuses you, you don't have to go, no, 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 I'm great. And you don't have to go, oh, yes, I'm condemned. There's a third way, which is to say Jesus dealt with that. Look what Martin Luther, the uh, 16th century reformer, said when he got attacked by the devil with accusation. He said this, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What does uh, that song say? No guilt in life because of the cross. It's a victory. But then we have death. And as Hebrews 2 puts it, only by dying could Jesus break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way, this bloody piece of meat on a cross way, could he set free all who've lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. The other weapon Satan has is the fear of death. And I could say loads of snazzy cultural analysis-y things about this and how that's behind all the consumerism because we've only got one life, so that's why we're greedy. But there's no time because I've got to go to Wembley. But what I will say is this. What I will say is this. That death is to be feared if you have a record of charges standing against you. Because when you die, when we die, when every human dies, we go before, praise God, the purest, highest judge ever. And he has, praise the Lord in a world of injustice, unwavering, spotless justice 
And if we go before him when we die, with our charges against us, death is to be feared above anything. But if your charges have been taken away, and you're adopted as a child of God, then death, though painful and though real, is now transformed. Death has lost its sting. Because now death is not me entering the most terrifying judgment. Now it is a reunion with my father who will say, welcome home, my boy, welcome home. And Jesus in dying has taken away the need to fear death for Christians. No guilt in life, no fear in death. It's a disarming And secondly, and much quicker, it's a public shaming. As Jesus is publicly shamed, he's publicly shaming Satan and the forces of evil. It says he shamed them by his victory on the cross. Now you speak to a first century Jerusalemite, and they know that the cross is a public shaming. Okay, that's what it was. In Golgotha, the place of the skull, as it's known, And you can almost get this idea that it stinks there and it's slightly outside the city and everybody goes there only to watch shameful scumbags be punished. And Jesus is there with spit on him and blood on him and this mock crown and the sign that says, oh, you're a king and all of this. And he gets spread out, exposed and he's shamed publicly. And Paul says, that's not the public shaming that's really happening. But on the cross, Satan is being publicly humiliated. Now, I think people, uh, theologians, seem to disagree exactly how this works. But I am convinced by this take on how Satan is humiliated in the death of Jesus. It would be humiliating, go with me, if Satan had tried to get in the way of Jesus and tried his best, bless him, to tear down the Son of God and tried really hard to get Judas to betray him and tried really hard to to ruin the the, the thing of Jesus on earth and had tried to end it, but had failed. That would be a form of humiliation for Satan. You know, he tried his best, but he just wasn't quite good enough. He got it a bit wrong. That's not what happens on the cross. What happens on the cross is Satan succeeds in getting Jesus to go under the judgment of God. He succeeds in getting Judas to betray him. He succeeds in extinguishing the light, in killing the Son of God. Satan wins. And how humiliating that in winning, God, what Satan wanted to use for evil, God turns it for good. And God upends the success of Satan and the triumph of Satan and the defeat of Jesus. So even as Satan licks his lips and says, we got him, boys. No, we didn't. You know the story of the Trojan horse? It's like Satan goes, look, let's throw Jesus into judgment from God and death. Then we've got him. But Jesus is the Trojan horse. He goes into judgment from God and he goes into death and he routes it from the inside out. And he goes, good try. You gave me your best and I've turned it for good. I overcame evil with good on the cross. What a humiliation. Not that he could do better next time, but that he got it all right, Satan. And Jesus knew all along. And that's what we're going to make salvation for this universe out of that act. Isn't that incredible? 
What a God. What a God. Number three, how is this good news for us today? Because some people say the reason that Jesus victoring, winning over Satan on the cross is good news today is because now there's no attack for us. Now the war's over and now we're just free from, from all of that. Not true. Not true. Our city is still under the power of the enemy. You say, well, how has he won then? How has Jesus beaten him? Jesus has, has won a victory. He's defeated him. He hasn't destroyed him, though. And, and many of you know the experience of, well, all of us do, of this lies coming at us, the accusation coming at us. It still comes at us. So how is it good news for us? Not that we no longer have to fight, not that we no longer have an enemy, but this is the good news. Because of Jesus, we no longer have to fall for any of the devil's schemes, not one of them. We were under the power of Satan, but look what it says in Colossians 1. He, Jesus, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. We belong to a different kingdom now. The city doesn't, but the church does. You do. Look at Acts 26, 18. Christians, we have moved from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. We are not under the power of Satan anymore because as Jesus wins the victory on the cross, look what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God. He now gives us the victory through Jesus. Jesus wins and then he transfers us to his power so that though Satan can attack us and Satan can come at us, we don't have to believe it or fall for it or go with it anymore because we're now in the kingdom of Jesus. He's given us the victory. And so though our city has to fall for lies, we don't have to fall for lies anymore. And though our city has to be crushed by accusation and condemnation, we do not. Though our city has to give in to temptation, we do not. Though our city has to be overtaken by greed, we do not. Though our city has to fall for empty philosophies, we do not. Though our city has to be consumed by anger, we do not. Though our city has to be fearful of death, we do not. Because we're in the kingdom of Jesus. And he's disarmed the, the spiritual rulers and authorities. Rather now, we can be part of the resistance. Then if you feel like you're a soldier, resisting, we can do that now. Look what it says in James 4. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That isn't true if you're not a Christian. If you're under his power. But now because of the victory of Jesus, Christians, resist the devil. Stand firm, he'll flee from you. Not you have to run away from the devil. Ah! No, you resist the devil, he runs away from you. 1 Peter, stand firm against him. Be strong in your faith. Stand firm. Don't fall for it. You don't have to fall for it. Stand firm. Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And uh, I'm going to finish in one minute 
But I just want to say that our city, Bearwood, Birmingham, our country, under the power of Satan, who is going to resist Satan for them? Who is going to pray light into darkness? Who is going to see through the lies and see through the empty philosophies and believe of something better and pray in something better and speak of something better? It's not the city. It's the church. They are not going to fight. We need to fight for them. We need to stand firm for them. We need to resist for them. Jesus has won a victory. And isn't it amazing? He doesn't do it by running in with a big old punch to the face. He bleeds. And yet as the victim, he's the victor. Let me pray.